Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So at the top of every year, we do something called our DNA series. And our DNA consists of three things. Our weird, weird name, our mission, and our vision. And last week, we took a look at our unique name. So this week, we're going to be taking a look at our mission. So what is the mission of Exilic? Why are we here in this great city? What are we doing? Well, our mission is to inspire thinkers to believe and to inspire believers to think. That is why we are here in the city. And I just want to think a little bit about the word inspire for a moment because the word inspire is very different from the word motivate. When you're motivating someone, you're almost like a coach and you're pushing them, right? So you're motivating them and you're pushing them to exercise or lose weight or to send out their resume to more companies. So you're pushing them. But when you're inspiring someone, you're not pushing them. Rather, you're pulling something out of them, which is why the word inspire actually comes from two different words, in spirit. So whenever you feel inspired by something that you see or, or read, What's happening is that your spirit is moving, it's being shaken, it's, it's being convicted, and, and therefore you feel compelled to do something. And so what we wanna do is to inspire thinkers to believe and believers to think, and what we wanna do is we wanna pull those inspirations and convictions out of people. And so now the question is, if that's why we're here, how do we do it? Well, there's a legend about Steve Jobs, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but there's a story of Steve Jobs uh, going to the Apple cafeteria, and he sees some of his colleagues there, and Steve Jobs asks his colleagues a question, and he says this, who is the most powerful person in the world? And thinking that it might be a trick question, they're like, is it, is it you, uh, Jeff Bezos? Uh, a king of some nation, and he says, wrong. The most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. And for Steve Jobs, he felt like Disney was the king of telling stories. And what he wanted to do was to have Apple be better than Disney at telling stories because stories are the primary way of inspiring people. 
of helping people grasp the ungraspable or helping people dream and imagine. And what I want to say is that, uh, first of all, I think, I think he's dead on. Storytellers are the most powerful people in the world, but it also depends on what story you're telling. And I believe that the gospel is not only the good news, but I also believe that the gospel is the greatest story ever told. So what I want to do is to tell you some stories today. For some of you, hopefully, to be inspired enough to believe it. And for those of you who do believe it, to think about it in a more deep, deeply profound way. So about a year or two ago, our family was having dinner and uh, we like to pray with our girls before we eat. And so I said, hey girls, let's pray. And my oldest, Logan at the time, goes, but daddy, I don't see God. Where is he? And I wish I could have told you I, I, I seized this moment as an educational opportunity to say something very profound. You know, as a pastor, you would think I would do something like that, like, like saying God is like the wind, Logan. You can't see the wind, but you can feel the wind. Or Logan, have you ever gone fishing before? You know, when you go fishing, you can't see the fish underneath the water, but you can feel the fish tugging on your line. Well, God is kind of like that. You can't see God, but you can feel him tugging on your heart. And I wish I could have told you I said something very profound like that, but the truth of the matter is, I think I was so hangry. I was, I was just like, um, Logan, God is everywhere and let's just pray and eat. And it was a wasted opportunity, but my, my uh, precocious young philosopher of a daughter does have a very profound question, doesn't she? And the question is this, how are we supposed to believe in a God that we cannot see? And you know what? This was Thomas's question as well. If you don't know who Thomas is, he was one of the 12 disciples. He was part of Jesus's closest entourage. And towards the end of Jesus's life, Thomas actually saw Jesus die hanging on a cross and not wanting to see his you know, rabbi and teacher suffer in agony, he stood afar at a distance. But he not only stood afar at a distance because he didn't want to see his Lord suffer, but it was also because he was afraid of being associated with him. He was ashamed of being associated with him, and he was afraid of the ramifications of being associated with him. And that's why he stood afar. But he did see Jesus die on the cross. And about a couple days later, uh, the, the 12 are, are locked in a room, hiding out of fear of the Jewish mafia. But they come up to Thomas and they say, Thomas, we've actually seen Jesus. Uh, and Thomas is thinking, you know, if I'm Frodo and Jesus is Gandalf, you know, our adventure's over. We saw him die with our own eyes. But now the disciples are saying, we've seen him. And Thomas, being, being a very modern scientific person, says, hey guys, Guess what? Dead people, they don't come back from the dead. Once you're dead, you're always dead. And this is what Thomas says in verses 24 to 25. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
And so what we see in these verses is that Thomas's faith is very, very conditional. Because for Thomas, unless he used like two or three of his five senses, unless he saw the resurrected Jesus, unless he touched the resurrected Jesus, he wasn't going to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead because guess what? People don't rise again from the dead. And in this regard, Thomas was a lot like us. Uh, although he was a very ancient person, he's a very modern person in the sense that the way he understood reality was strictly through a scientific lens. And part of the reason why we only view reality in the world that we live in strictly through a scientific lens is because of Enlightenment philosophers like David Hume. Hume once said that um, because of science, we now know the laws of nature. And miracles, by definition, they are a violation and a suspension of the laws of nature. Therefore, miracles do not exist. And I think that argument that because of science, we know the laws of nature, miracles are a suspension of the laws of nature, therefore miracles do not exist. I think, I think that's a pretty tight argument, except for the fact that the one thing Hume is missing from his equation is this. But what if there's a God? If there is a God and he is the one that made the laws of nature, can he also suspend the laws of nature if he wants to? Can he walk on, uh, walk on water or, or, or separate the Red Sea? Can he... Can he burn a bush without it burning? Can he raise people from the dead? And, and I think the answer is yes. Uh, if there is a God, he can do whatever he wants with the laws of nature. And so the first question we should be asking is not whether miracles can happen or not, like people rising in from, uh, again from the dead. But I think the first question that we should be asking is this. Is there a God? Because if there's a God, he can do whatever he wants. Now, I know that the... Again, the scientific part of us, the rational part of us, the, the, the thinking part of us against us. No, 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 no. The only way of understanding reality is through science. So let me read you something from one of the world's most respected scientists that we have today, and that is Francis Collins. If you've never heard of Francis Collins before, he's the head of the Human Genome Project. And if you've never heard of Francis Collins before, I know by now all of us know who Dr. Fauci is. You know who Dr. Fauci's boss is? It's Francis Collins. So Francis Collins is one of the world's most respected geneticists there is. Okay, so this is, this is not some, some ordinary person that uh, is not known in the scientific community. What's also interesting about Francis Collins is that he didn't grow up in the church and he wasn't a Christian at a young age and then became a scientist. Rather, he was a scientist first and recently, he recently became a Christian. And even in the midst of his understanding of science, um, he also became a man of faith. And he never saw these two things as competitive, but he always saw these things, when he became a Christian, as complementary. Uh, and this is what Fran Francis Collins says in his book, The Language of God. Is there the possibility of a richly satisfying harmony between the scientific and spiritual worldviews? I answer with a resounding yes. In my view, there is no conflict in being a rigorous scientist and a person who believes in God. Science's domain is to explore nature. God's domain is in the spiritual world, a realm not possible to explore with the tools and language of science. It must be examined with the heart the mind and the soul. And the mind must find a way to embrace 
both realms. And just to be clear here, what Collins is saying and what I'm saying is that science is a wonderful way of understanding reality, but it is not the only way of understanding reality. I'll give you another example of this. The geologist and former president of Cornell, Frank Rhodes, he once said, why is the water in the kettle boiling? From a strictly scientific perspective, the water is boiling in the kettle because the fire is on, on the stove and there's energy conversion and that's why the water is boiling. And Frank Rhodes says, but is there another reason why the water is boiling? And Frank Rhodes says, yes. The reason why the kettle is boiling is because I want to make tea for my friends. There's a sociological reason, not just a scientific reason. There's a sociological reason why the water is boiling in the kettle. Now, all this to say, science is not the only way of understanding reality. This is why we need the arts department uh, and the humanities departments in our universities to have a balanced perspective, to have a holistic uh, perspective in understanding the world uh, that we live in. And this brings me back to our original question then. How do we believe in a God then that we can't see with our eyes? Is there another way? Read with me in verses 26 to 28. And it says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, but this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, immediately, as, as uh, readers of the story, we think, okay, this isn't fair. I mean, the reason why Thomas believes in God is because he was able to use two of his five senses. He was able to see the resurrected Jesus and, and touch the resurrected Jesus. If I was able to do that, then sure, I would believe that Jesus rose again from the dead too. But notice what Jesus says immediately after Thomas's profession of faith. In verse 29, Jesus says this, then Jesus told him, that is Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so what we see here is a juxtaposition between what Thomas is saying and what Jesus is saying. Because what Thomas says is, unless I see the resurrected Jesus, unless I touch the resurrected Jesus, I'm not going to believe. And yet what Jesus says here is this, Thomas, blessed are those who don't see me, who haven't touched me, and yet they still believe in me anyway. And again, this harkens back to the question, but how? Because we're constantly running up against this roadblock. How are we supposed to believe in a God that we can't see or touch or hear or smell? How are we supposed to believe in a God like that? And this is where I strongly, strongly believe that a renaissance of the imagination, a renaissance of the imagination is the key to unlocking are disenchanted minds. And that is what John is trying to do here when he talks about Jesus walking, entering into their room that is locked without actually picking the lock or opening up the door. He walks in with the power of some kind of transporter or X-Men or Avenger. And, and what John is trying to do is capture our imaginations because that is the key to unlocking our disenchanted minds. So what does it mean to imagine something? To imagine something means that we're imaging something that we cannot see. And sadly, oftentimes the way that we use the word imagination is in a very pejorative sense, like, oh, that's, that's just your imagination. 
But the truth of the matter is we use our imaginations up to 35% of the day, every single day. You know what you're doing when you lose your keys? You're trying to imagine where you last left them. You know, when someone asks you the question, who do you want to be five years from now? What do you want to do? You're trying to imagine yourself what you look like five years from now. When someone is suffering and you want to empathize with them, what are you doing? You're trying to imagine yourself in their shoes. In a biblical sense, when God tells Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, what is God trying to do? He's trying to capture Abraham's imagination that his descendants will be that numerous. And so the, the, the question isn't whether or not we use our imaginations. The question is, how do we use our imaginations? Because we can also use our imaginations in bad ways too. When we worry, what are we doing? We're imagining hypothetical situations about the future. When we lost, we're imagining hypothetical situations. So the bigger question isn't whether or not we use it. The question is, how do we use it? Do we use it for good or bad? Do we use it to pursue the truth or not? Uh, Albert Einstein, he once said that the imagination and knowledge, they are not competitive, but they're complementary. The two are in an endless dance that the imagination is leading. And that's something that is so important for us to do. If we want to uh, inspire people to believe in who God is, we have to learn how to capture uh, the people's, uh, people's imaginations better because the imagination is not the enemy of the truth. Uh, if anything, I would say that when our imagination atrophies, uh, we become more robotic and less human. The imagination is so, so important that most of the greatest discoveries that have ever been made have been made first because of the imagination. It wasn't rocket science alone that landed us on the moon. It was first because of our imagination. We started imagining what it might be like to walk on the surface of the moon. And so the imagination has made tons and tons of amazing discoveries. And so why would it be any different when it comes to discovering who God is as well? So what I, wanted, what I want you to do again is to imagine yourself in the room with the 12 disciples. They're hiding out of fear of their lives because the Jewish mafia is out after them. And all of a sudden, in the midst of their trepidation and fear, Jesus, again, he walks into the room without opening up the door that is locked or picking the lock. And immediately again, what we're thinking of um, as modern scientific people is that's not possible. A dead man cannot rise again from the dead and my response would be, you're right. A dead man can't rise again from the dead. But what if he wasn't just a man? What if he was the God-man? All historians agree that Jesus lived and died. But I think the more profound question is this. Did he die and live? Because if he died and lived, then that changes absolutely everything. And at this point, what I could do and what I have done in the past is I can give you N.T. Wright's 800-page book on the resurrection filled with evidences and proofs for the resurrection. But oftentimes what our mind needs is not just new arguments, but what our mind also needs for our malnourished imaginations are new beauties. New beauties to feed our starved imaginations. And so that's, that's what I want to do. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, he also wrote a very short essay uh, on fairy tales. 
And talk, Tolkien talks about five components that every good fairy tale has. And these are the five. Number one, stepping outside of time. Number two, escaping from death. Number three, experiencing love without parting. Number four, contact with non-human beings. And number five, the final triumph of good over evil. And so what Tolkien is saying here is that every good fairy tale has some of these elements to it, which is why we're fascinated with stories like Wizard of Oz or Beauty and the Beast or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Um, it's because they have some of these elements. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't mean these fairy tales are true. And you're right, it doesn't mean that they're true. But what I do find very interesting is that we almost have this insatiable appetite for these kinds of stories, which is why when we're, when we're immersed in these stories, it's almost like we don't wanna leave the world that they inhabit. We wanna stay in the pages. We wanna keep watching the movie. Now, now why is that the case? If, if it's not real, if it's not true, I mean, is it just good writing? Is that the reason why we wanna stay in that world or we want these things to kind of be true? Or does it point to something more than just good writing? C.S. Lewis would say it does. Uh, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what's very interesting is that if you take a look at the dedication page, it's dedicated to his goddaughter, uh, Lucy Barfield. And as he, as he writes this dedication page, Lewis almost anticipates uh, Lucy's quickly growing disenchantment. But this is, and so this is what he says. He says this, my dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. Your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. So what is Lewis saying here? He's anticipating Lucy's disenchantment. But one of the things that he says that I find very interesting is this. When you get older, there will be a desire to open up this book again. When, when, when you've grown older and more mature, you, you will long to be re-enchanted once again. And, and I think he's spot on. The older we get, we, we become more disenchanted. But at a certain point in life, when you've tasted all that life has to offer and when you've seen a lot about life, there is a part of us that longs to be re-enchanted again, which is why when we're at a funeral and we're staring at a corpse in a coffin, there is a part of us that thinks, this is not right. This can't be the final ending. There's a, there's a desire in us for the final triumph of good over evil that there's some kind of escape from death, escape from time even, a love without parting where we can see that person again. And so the more and more we become disenchanted with life, the, the more and more we long to be re-enchanted again. But what is the story, what is the reality that can actually do that for us? And I, I think it's Christianity. When you take a look at the gospel, it contains each of the five elements that uh, Tolkien is talking about. Tolkien talks about stepping outside of time. The God of eternity, the Alpha and Omega, steps outside of time and enters into our world, and we will have eternal life too. There's an escape from death. Because he lives, we too shall live one day. There's an experience of love without parting. We will be with our loved ones. There's contact with non-human beings. God is not, 
uh, God is a spirit, right? And then there's the final triumph of good over evil. Death is not, death has lost its sting. It is not the final victor because Jesus rose again, so shall we. Uh, I've said this before and I'll say it again. There are two things that might persuade me to abandon my faith. Number one, if you find the missing body of Jesus, because if you do, it means that he didn't bodily rise again from the dead. But there's one other thing that you can, uh, you can do to convince me to abandon my faith, and that is this. Tell me a better story. Tell me a better story other than the gospel, and I bet you, you can't. The gospel is not only the good news, but it is the greatest story ever told. It is the fairy tale that all of the other fairy tales point to, except for the fact that it's true. That's why we have such an insatiable desire and longing for fairy tales, because it's pointing to the ultimate one, and that is the gospel. Uh, so as we wrap up, uh, I want to close with something from another artistic writer, and that is Mark Twain. And Twain once said this, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. How do we focus our imaginations? How do we redeem it for the good and not for the bad? How do we use it to pursue the truth instead of not pursuing the truth? Come back again. Come back to our church because every week what we try to do is to inspire thinkers to believe and to inspire believers to think through storytelling and in particular, the greatest story ever told. Please pray with me.